and welcome to Pedagodzilla, the pedagogic podcast with the pop culture core. Today we will be answering the bloody stupid question, how is gamification like being trapped in the Matrix? And what is the real world of game-based learning? I'm Mike Collins, I'm a learning designer with the Open University, a man with a microphone and imposter syndrome incarnate. And I'm Mark Childs and I'm one of several people with a PhD in education in this podcast. Oh god, I feel like barely no PhD here. (laughs) Yeah, you do one. You can do one. Anyone could do one. You've just got to put up with having no life for three years or six years or whatever. I've got no day. life now. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. You're already halfway there then, Mark. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> so, Mark and I won't be answering this on our own this evening. This e- I say it's evening for you and morning for us, really, isn't it? Yeah, it is because this evening, 7pm. We are joined by two capable co-facilitators, co-podcasters, co-editors. Um, co-editors. <laughs> They've basically written the episode, to be perfectly honest. It's James York. Hi, I'm James. Uh, I am a lecturer at Tokyo Denki University. Uh, I'm the oh. co-editor of a journal called Ludic Language Pedagogy. I am an indie artist, musician, uh, a tinkerer, and a taiko drummer. So I play the big Japanese drums. Oh, cool. Fantastic. And Jonathan. Hi, uh, I'm Jonathan Dahan. Uh, I'm an associate professor at the University of Shizuoka. I am the other half of Ludic Language Pedagogy. I have a PhD in educational technology and... I'm a massive Metal Gear Solid fan, and I just finished Peace Walker. Which we're probably going to have to do a Metal Gear Solid episode at some stage in the future. For me, it'll be just the first, the PS1 one, not the Uh, first. Nice, nice. So how is gamification like being trapped in the Matrix, and what's the real world of game-based learning? To answer that question, we're first going to need to break apart in the first part of the show. Part one, the question. Okay, so first things first, the Matrix. It's a movie. It's probably one of the single best uh, DVD releases of the early 2000s. I think it might have been one of the first Blu-rays out. Uh, made in 1999, it's the one that uh, made everybody realise that Keanu Reeves could do an extra facial expression. <laughs> it's absolutely amazing. It's one of my favourite movies of all time, and I recently rewatched the entire trilogy. Does somebody right. want to just cover what The Matrix is? We've already sort of touched on it in the podcast previously, but let's just do a quick re- refresher. What is The Matrix? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The movie or The Matrix itself? Oh, well, let's okay. So, first of all, let's do the Matrix movie, just a quick okay. overview, and then I guess we can dive into what the Matrix itself is because I suppose that's kind of going to be the focus a little bit of, uh, of our discussion today. So, the Matrix movie it follows the it follows a lead character called Neo. Well, his actual name is Thomas Anderson. Um, he gets a strange message on his computer one day, which tells him that he needs to follow the White Rabbit. Does that it says that on the computer, right? Uh, so he follows the White Rabbit to a club. He meets somebody and he finds, eventually, he follows this person. person rings him and says, watch out, they're coming for you. And he's in his uh, office booth and these uh, kind of agents of the law come to try and track him down. He gets a phone call from somebody called Morpheus and Morpheus says, you know, you need to come with me. Do you want to take the blue pill or the red pill? I guess that's the most uh, iconic scene. And um, if he takes the the blue pill, he doesn't, he wakes up in his bed like he never met Morpheus at all. Nothing happened. Uh, if he takes the red pill, he wakes up and he sees how far, how deep the rabbit hole goes. And he does take the red pill. And when he takes the red pill, he wakes up in a different place. So he's actually finds out that he was a basically a battery for a huge machine world. And Morpheus goes in his pod, picks him up, and, and he reveals to the lead character, Neo or Thomas Anderson, he reveals to him that actually the world has been taken over by machines and the humans are creating a kind of rebel uh, underground base. And his world that he thought was real is actually a computer simulation. And so 
then Neo, he gets jacked back into the computer so he can like train to become super strong in martial arts. Then he goes back in to, to fight uh, these agents. And in the end, he ends up, uh, you know, being able to beat the computer at its own game, uh, jumps into one of the agent agents, destroys him, and he turns into Superman. He is the one. Is that okay? That was beautiful. Does the job. That was amazing. That was great. You can do this all the time. That was a wonderful summary. Did I, I think anything? it's worth saying as well that it's uh, The Matrix is probably one of the most parodied movies ever just because it includes some unbelievable um, VFX shots, kind of groundbreaking at the time. It's also got some amazing re- early CG. And I think it, um, it kind of set a, an interesting template for how action movies were evolving, going out of kind of like, you know, your 80s and 90s sort of muscle-bound action shooters into something a little bit more um, cerebral, cerebral. Underpinned, yeah. by, underpinned by some just interesting philosophical concepts. And the, um, the siblings Wachowski they really do try and sort of get their philosophies about sort of the nature of consciousness and reality through throughout the course of the trilogy and i personally think that the first movie is where they just encapsulated it the best as a whole but interestingly the sort of the trilogy as a unit as well if viewed as like a single thing actually works really well as well basically just fast forward through big bits of the second movie and pretty hefty chunks of the third movie and you get all the the deliciousness it's just it's such a well-made trilogy of movies and i absolutely love it but guys um you wanted to focus maybe on what the matrix itself was as a construct so sure. do you want to maybe dive into that a little bit? Yeah, so the the matrix is the system that the all the slaves in their pods producing electricity are jacked into. So while they are taking a bath in their pods, their brains are plugged into this yeah, computer-generated world that gives them jobs and things to do and and plays out like daily life, right? And the quote that we really like from this about the matrix is that it's all about control, right? It, the Matrix is a computer-generated dream world built to keep us under control in order to change a human being into a battery, essentially, right? For me, that's probably the wobbliest bit of the whole franchise, but I'm, I'm happy to gloss over that in the interests of dystopian sci-fi. Something we've not covered is, why do you guys like The Matrix? Oh, I mean, I was a teenager when it came mm-hmm. out, and it was just absolutely phenomenal, you know? And I just think the concept was very, so unique, you know, this idea of the actually what i mean i watched it with my son who's only seven and he said daddy is is this the matrix he like because it, it it's kind of mm. makes you question everything and my, my son was uh even kind of influenced by it so i think that you know and again like um uh mike mentioned the idea that it can kind of bring philosophy into mainstream action movies like yeah it's got a lot going for it i also feel it's one of those movies kind of like the truman show that was kind of a, an accessible one that genuinely challenged your perception of reality mm-hmm. <laughs> yep Okay, so I can see here you want to talk about the blue pill and the red pill as well. Well, I mean, it does sort of help yeah. set up something we want to talk about later because when Morpheus contacts Neo and they talk in the Matrix, he, he's offered a choice, right? Mm-hmm. And that's going to set mm-hmm. up something later in our episode, right? Like, so Neo, uh, so Thomas Anderson is offered a choice. Uh, if he takes the blue pill, he stays in the dream world, right? He he doesn't learn anything about reality, and he just stays as he is, right? And if he takes the red pill, you learn the truth, right? Uh, and, and things get deeper, but they also get more complicated. And, and then you learn about the real world, which and turns out to be yeah, exactly how much of a struggle it is. So I think, I think that the blue pill and the red <clears throat> pill uh, are useful. Uh, it's, a useful it's a useful book bookmark in the episode and, and a good metaphor for people to uh, glom onto a little bit 
as, as we well, it, continue to explore gamification and game-based learning and pedagogy <clears throat> and the, the, the desert of the real. Mm. Well, as a metaphor, I mean, it's been really adopted. I mean, when I first saw The Matrix, yeah. I had no idea what they were talking about. When uh, Morpheus was saying you sense something around you when you go to church, when you pay your taxes, there's some construct all around you, whatever. And I was convinced he was talking about, you know, like a political thing. There's this system keeping you all in check, controlling you and, and sort of dominating you and in a kind of Chomsky way, you know, manufacturing consent through all these, these sorts of the way it exploits your weaknesses and your needs and all that sort of stuff. And that's actually pretty much how the sort of QAnon uh, incel groups are now using red pill and blue pill are going, oh, you're just a blue pillar because you're believing all this sort of you know, this, the, the sort of stuff that, uh, I don't know, the feminist agenda's telling you or whatever, and us, us red pillars have seen through all your lies. And I think that there possibly is, if you're looking at metaphors like that, there possibly is a sort of whole system of cultural control around us that is, but it's more like neoliberalism, it's capitalism, it's competing with each other, get up the leaderboard, all that sort of thing. And I think that's another thing that might lead into your gamification games-based learning distinction is, you know, they've tried to gamify our life. And I thought this is what he was talking about, that it was like the way our lives been gamified in order to keep us under check. And then, of course, mm. he takes the red pill and he has to buckle up because he's just, because reality goes bye-bye. <laughs> and, and he That's ends it, up yeah. inside this computer and realizes that he's just been in this computer matrix the whole time. But I think that's you know, there is a sort of thing about trying to see through the fakeness around our lives, which is kind of red pill, blue pilly. Although I think the only problem with these QAnon incel exactly right, people, yeah, is yeah. that they're kind of colorblind and they can't mm. tell the difference between red and blue. I just, I think, I yeah, it became a bit of a uh, a dog whistle or whatever for a particular kind of person, right? In the last five years or so, I guess this this red yeah. pilling. So, yeah. which is another thing I think Lena Wachowski wants to address in the. In the new one, because, of course, right. for them, for the Wachowski siblings, and we'd be calling them siblings because they were brothers when they made the movie and they're sisters mm -hmm. now, mm -hmm. is the red pill is the pill you take. The color of the pill you take when you are transitioning uh, hormonally is red. So for them, the whole red pill thing was about actually giving up the fakeness of their lives as men and then ad uh, uh, you know, adopting the reality of their lives as women. And I so, had no idea. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that's a, what it all meant to them as well. So I think for her to now be seeing all these assholes appropriating this metaphor, which is about trying to see through the fakeness of your lives, and then mm. it becoming, like I said, it's a, it's a dog whistle for that sort of stuff. But mm. I think there's still a, a, a power behind that idea of, you know, the red pill, blue pill. It's just a matter of appropriating it from, people that have been applying misapplying it because they are not capable of seeing reality they just like to construct their own i was convinced the whole all of these years that the reason it was a red pill and a blue pill was because otherwise it would have been would you like the white pill or the white pill because white. <laughs> um, i also just want to very quickly throw in a point of just um uh did the kind of the uh the seeing through reality thing when obviously uh neo does well, mr anderson when mr anderson mm. uh takes the pill you know, he he sees to the real world, and it is bloody awful. Okay, it yeah, is it's, a miserable yeah. hell where he has a tube down his throat. He's got what's it's in his spine and his neck and his back of his skull. Mm. It is absolutely vile. So 
your standard uh, depressed reminder that the more you know, the less happy you are. Well, that's how you tell the difference between the colours. You know, I mean, if you're, if you're, I'm accusing these QAnon people of being colourblind. Well, <laughs> if you're really taking the red pill, that's going to make you unhappier. But it's not for them. It's like, oh, look, we can see what's going on. We know what, yeah. what reality is. And it's making them happy and thinking, well, therefore, that's not the red pill, is it? Because if it was really was the red pill, you'd taken it. You would now be unhappier than you were before. So obviously, you've taken the wrong pill. I don't want to go too far down that route, to be honest. I think that <laughs> we're going to come back to the red pill of, as coming out of gamification. So yeah. it should yeah. make you happier. In the long run, okay. I think well, maybe we'll Neo, Neo, and, yeah, Neo and the guys will be happier out of the Matrix. But this is there's only that one guy, Cypher, right? Cypher wants to go back in and makes the deal with um, one of the agents. Yeah. The real world is hard, and that's what makes it worth doing. Let's go Nietzschean on this and say that you know, yes. oh. uh, yeah. the, str- and I, the struggle I, is worth it. Yeah, and I think there's a there's a guy, and we're going to have to drop this in. I'm going to have to say Jonathan no sex or something. No sex. That's not right, isn't it? Because <laughs> if he's having no sex, he's not going to be having fun at all. Um, no, chick, <laughs> no, no chick. No, I can't remember. I'll, we'll look it up. In, I'll look it. I'm looking at notes. But he was saying that even if life is harder, they will want a real life. That given this opportunity to ex- have this paradise that's not real. That's right. Well, that, they actually for? talk about that in the Matrix, the movie itself, the first and the mm. second iteration of it were utopia mm. and it just went to shit and so it is I would, as it is now because that was the perfect kind of balance for humans so yeah and you're right it does play into the argument more to look more at cypher as being aberration and i think you're right that he is because i think most of us would actually want the reality even if it was a bit grimmer and it's not that necessarily grimmer um, i mean you know they have that rave in zion and that looked like a lot of fun didn't it yeah. so you know <laughs> cave um, so maybe it's not so bad yeah cave ravers <laughs> So, uh, which we'll hope, I don't know if we'll see that in June, but they do have a cave rave in June as well at some point, but let's not go there. Let's, uh, yeah, let's, not, go, let's not go to June again, Mark. Let's not go down to June. Let's not go down to oh, June. June okay. So, no, I think the, the, red, the blue pill and red pill are just wonderful metaphors, and, and, and I think that's why it hit people really well, because they could apply it to so many different aspects of society. Like just, you know, what is the matrix can be interpreted in different ways, or red pilling and blue pilling. I mean, there's the idea of, uh, the spectacle, right? Like I DeBoard and Brenda Laurel talked about piercing the spectacle where the spectacle is consumerism and social media mm-hmm. and that also envelops us. And so the metaphor can be applied not only to what we're going to talk about today, gamification and computer games, but to, to Twitter and to Facebook and the realities around yeah. us that if we red pill we may, you know, distance ourselves from those. We uh, see through it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Um, anyway, okay. So I think we've um, yeah explored. Uh, we've covered the matrix. We've recovered the matrix. We've really dived into what the matrix is and the sort of the red pill, blue pill aspect of it. <laughs> so let's now look at the pedagogy, the pedagogic part of our question: uh, How is gamification like being trapped in the matrix? So gamification. We've had this uh, come up a couple of times in the podcast now. And every time we're basically saying we need to cover gamification in an episode, and then Jonathan and James came along and basically presented themselves as the world's leading experts <laughs> on oh, gamification. God. So we were really pleased to have the scariest thing ever to live up to <laughs> take us through it and give us the, um, the yeah. ex- expert definitive. Um, yeah. I I read this stuff and I concur entirely about the distinction between gamification and games based learning, but it'd be really interesting if they could lay it out for you know for the listeners. Easy. What the yeah. distinction is. Yeah, go ahead. Gamification. So the, everybody's <laughs> best friend. <laughs> the, no. the, 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 the kind that of, sounds hot. That sounds sexy. Bright. I like really. I'm, I'm really excited about the potential 
that sexy word has to transform my teaching. Tell me more. <laughs> Come on, please. So the definition of gamification is uh, the use of game elements in non-game context. This is the kind of shortest way you can say, again, applying game elements. So you're applying a leaderboard, applying a jump mechanic, applying uh, randomness to a non-game context. Um, a non-game context could be marketing. It could be uh, education. So let's dive into both of those. So uh, an example of gamification in marketing would be something like point cards. Now, what is the point of a points card? Well, it um, rewards you based on your loyalty to that brand. So if you spend, say, I don't know, a thousand yen or 10 pounds in uh, Starbucks, you might get some points, which allow you to get a free coffee. So in, in a way, they're controlling your behavior to go back to Starbucks over another brand because you're, you've already kind of invested in them. You've already kind of earned some points. You want to go back and uh, spend some more. So that is a kind of a typical marketing use of uh, gamification in terms of points. Um, you can also look at flyer miles in the same way. And the Toyota Prius, which I actually drive as my family car, it has a dashboard which has your current uh, miles per gallon, we say in the UK. So how many miles per gallon you are doing. And then you can try and beat your score and get better miles per gallon. So it's kind of like, you know, a point, a visual um, expression of, of how well you're doing, really. So that's a marketing use of it. Uh, in educational uses of it, we've got two types here that we're going to talk about. The first one is what's known as kind of structural or reward-based gamification. And it's very similar to what we just talked about, really, the idea of uh, badges and uh, leaderboards and points. So you're basically rewarding students for doing particular activities which you want them to do. So you're kind of driving behavior down certain pathways that yeah, there might be one pathway, there may be two or three, but regardless, you have created these pathways for students to go down and you're giving them points for doing a good job. The idea of this is that the, the initial extrinsic reward of the, say, 10 points for doing a quiz, um, if you do enough quizzes and you get enough points, then the idea is that it should lead into intrinsic motivation. So you'd start to want to do it by yourself rather than for the reward on its own. And this is a typical Again, reward-based gamification. It's also known as BLAP gamification, B-L-A-P. Uh, this is a kind of a, a pejorative, I guess, from, uh, from Nicholson. And it's B for badges, L for leaderboards, A for achievements, and P for points. Yep, and so you go BLAP, and you just throw it on your pedagogy, and you transform learning. There we go. BLAP. That's amazing. So, and I mean, the weakness of that as an approach ah, is, the, is that it, it's it's kind of assuming a competitive nature of all of the participants and not everybody this, is competitive yeah. in that way. So you're only really at any point going to be maybe ch reaching half your students because half of them are going, oh, I don't care about being top. It's not a big deal to me. Or, yeah, Jonathan, you know, Jonathan they, has experience of this and so do I actually. Um, students, students can game it essentially where it's like, okay, you're going to get, if you get a thousand points, you get an A and you can do any of these five activities. And it's like, well, mm. I just want to do this easy one a hundred times. But anyway, if you let me keep going on, I've got another type here. So we've got, so we've got black gamification, which is reward-based. And uh, one that's came out more recently um, is my context uh, uh, gamification. It's also known as gameful pedagogy. So they're trying to mm. make it sound a bit hmm, sexy. And what this is, is it's very heavily kind of based in self-determination theory. And what self-determination theory says is that in order to, for a student to... Um, be motivated, you need to give them autonomy. You need to give them a sense of uh, competency, like that they can do something. 
and you need to uh, give them something that's related. So maybe relationships or something that's related to their, their daily lives, if you like. And so this context or gameful pedagogy, because it's so heavily based in self-determination theory, the idea is that, well, isn't that just good teaching and not actually gamification at all? So my argument is that for <laughs> gameful pedagogy, the word game is superfluous. Um, it kind of commodifies the hard work of teachers by saying, you know, oh, it's going to be a game. It's so easy. Whereas, you know, teaching is actually quite hard. So I think if you just remove the game and say, I, I'm just teaching really well with SDT, I don't know why they're using gameful pedagogy. It just seems like it's to, to sell it as, you know, something that it isn't. So they're the, they're the three types we got here. We, we, had, we had gamification in marketing. We had gamification in education, two types. And the two types were structural, reward-based, or context, uh, gameful pedagogy, which was self-determination theory. That's a fantastic breakdown. Isn't he good? That's, really that's good. awesome. He's, that's he's really, really awesome. Good. He does that's this probably all the, the time. So I actually that's the had best, to simplest explanation. I actually <laughs> had to do this in Japanese for, for an interview recently. Oh, so. my God. Bloody yeah. Nora. Oh yeah. <laughs> so can we have it again in Japanese, please? <laughs> <laughs> come on, do it. Come on. A little bit. Come on. We're going to sample that. Put some techno over it. Yeah, what's well, yeah. self-determination theory in Japanese? I want to know. It is jikoketsu dan liron. Oh, see, that sounds much better. Everything sounds better in Japanese. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> 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 I'd, I'd like us to just maybe discuss a couple of the points that you've gone through there. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, really interesting. And as a, yeah. as a breakdown, actually, that's probably one of the simplest breakdowns for some of the different kind of uh, categories and characteristics of gamification that I've heard, which I love. Jonathan, do you have anything you want to add? I don't. He's really good. He does this at the drop of a hat. Like, he just, <laughs> it's, it's, it's no secret that James is not a fan of gamification <laughs> yeah. and has spent years building a very good argument against it. Against it. Well, I mean, that's the thing. For me, my, my usual issue with gamification is when it comes up in discussions um, around sort of pedagogy of teaching, it's usually somebody saying, so we're going to do badges and that equals gamification and gamification, because it includes the word game, equals good. And they're, sort of, they're doing a lot of kind of mental um, sort of leapfrogging to get to that point. Um, Alex, I think it's sort of like, oh, kids like games, kids like cool things, therefore gamification equals cool. That's right. Um, yeah, okay. So the, the pushback on that is kids like games, but they don't like be- being forced to do things. And the, the, point, the point about gamification is that so the, the, if we sum up this whole episode, being in the Matrix is not living in the real world, whereas taking the red pill and coming out of the Matrix is living in the real world, okay? So gamification is not playing a game. Game-based learning is actually playing a game. So if mm. you're going to call your pedagogy gamification, it kind of tricks kids into thinking that it's going to be a game. When really, it's just good teaching if you're doing the, the self-determination uh, theory uh, style of gamification. So, uh, And going back to the whole, you know, a political whatever thingy, it's, it's actually reinforcing those structures of, hey, let's all be, try and get to the top. Let's all try and beat everybody else. Let's use that as a motivation for engaging in stuff which is ultimately for the wrong reason. You're not engaging kids with or students or whatever with the love for learning, the interest in the subject. It's like, let's do this, this, and this in order to get to the top of the, the leader tree. And that's appealing mm. not necessarily to the best aspects of who our learners are or who we are as people. So there's a couple of um, quotes here that I'd like to um, read out. Well, the first one is, it's not a quote, actually. So exactly what um, Mark just said about the the fact that if you're having to get points to do something, it kind of denigrates the task itself to being worthless. Now, what I mean by that is if you can imagine your mum uh, says, I'll give you a pound if you clean the toilet. 
you would do that task perhaps, right? You'd, you'd say, okay, it's probably worth a pound to do this task that I don't like to do. So in the same way, gamification is saying, if you read this book, I'll give you 100 XP or whatever. Then it's kind of saying, this task is probably not worth your time. You're probably not going to do it unless I give you some points towards your grain. So it kind of says, I, I have to give you a reward for this because I know it's worthless and you don't have to do it. Or you won't do it if I don't give you a, a reward. So I think we're kind of saying that by using such you know reward-based gamification in a way. Yeah, um, I, I would like to possibly come in weirdly in slight defense of Let's this go. kind of behavior though i'm happy to be talked down on it but i think yeah having it as perhaps the the key motivator for making somebody do something i think yeah that's uh that feels very flawed as a way of drawing somebody through something uh particularly if it's a system that can then be game because you know we are we're problem solving monkeys we are designed to find game systems it's what people do all the time however i think it's a i do enjoy it as a layer that can be added to something that you already enjoy I think having it as an optional layer that people can engage with um, oh, okay. does, to me, appeal. So, I mean, I always uh, think of Xbox Live Achievements mm. as a really good example. When they first came out, they were very uh, very superfluous. It was, you get an achievement for completing the first level, the 6th, 7th, 8th, ninth, 10th, and then 1,000 points, you've completed this game entirely well done. Mm. But they started getting quite uh, exploratory with them. So they started putting in things for very obscure things that you could do within the game. And which might encourage people to look and find different ways of enjoying the game, some of the strange and wonderful things they could do within them. So um, you'd have achievements for finding all the hidden packages, for example, unbelievably boring and unrewarding. But things like kick a pigeon off the top of the Empire State Building, that kind of thing. You go, how the hell do I get up there? How do I get to this pigeon? And then the Mm. sort of the sense of kind of generating an additional level of adventure in that, particularly if it's something you're already enjoying. I feel that you need to have the intrinsic motivations play the game first mm. to um to actually engage with that yeah i think there's three points to that isn't there there's the fact that you're interested in the game itself so that was a point that, that perhaps isn't in in general education the second point is that the achievements were added as an addition to playing the game you mentioned you have to go out of your way to do them so they actually appeal to certain types of people as well um and then the third point is there is research on um, people that are already already intrinsically motivated to do something. If they're then given an award, it can kind of demotivate them. Yeah. Oh, uh, really? Yeah, well, we, I, there was a thing about, I think it's RS Animate. I don't read things. I look at cartoons. Ken Robinson talking about employment and that sort of stuff. You know, the way that you that if you start paying people more, it actually can, it doesn't have any effect on their motivation. It does to a certain extent. You need enough money in order to survive, and it's no fun if you're not earning enough. But once you get to a certain level, giving people more, a higher salary doesn't engage them more. What you have to do is give them more autonomy, mm. and you have to give them more creative things to do in their job. Self-determination then, theory, perhaps. Yeah. Absolutely. I think you could push back as well, Mike, uh, by saying that, you know, not all teachers and not all contexts have what me and Jonathan like to call the freedom to play. Um, so maybe you really do not have any other option but to teach what uh, the policymakers say at your school. It's like you must cover these topics each week and you're going to do your best to try and get students to do that, in which case you perhaps will um, engage in bribing, essentially, like giving points for particular tasks and driving behavior where you want it to go. And that that would definitely be a problem with modern educational institutes where teachers don't have the freedom to play and do things um, their own way, if you like. So, yeah. But then when I was looking at games-based learning, most of the examples of people using games in the classroom were only as a reward. So it was like, you do this and you do that and you do that. 
And we've got these games on the top shelf here in this cupboard. And then you can play a game and that'll make right, you happier. Okay. So the only way they were using games was actually as a form of as reward, a reward in, a con- yeah. as a con- in a kind of gamification pedagogy, not as mm. games-based learning. Mm. But there we go. Speaking of games-based learning. Exactly. That was my segue. <laughs> we have a second See part of our question. smooth we are. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, the edit. Um, so... <laughs> Speaking of games-based learning, so we've got the second part of our question, which is, and what is the real world of game-based learning? So... Yeah, Jonathan, do you want to take this one? He's just coming back. Hold on, I'm just going to stoke the fire. Okay, we're just going to stoke the fire, sorry, and then we're going to do, we'll let Jonathan, because I talked about games. Uh, uh, and I, so... I need to point out to our listeners that when they say they're stoking their fire, they mean they're talking literally, not metaphorically. <laughs> literally, <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take a picture for the show notes. <laughs> just to prove there really is a fire. We call it game-based singular, by the way. Oh, but, but okay. No, no, that's but, okay. But, that's the, but that's the problem, because people refer to it in so many different ways. Like, there's game-based learning, and there's games-based learning, there's games-based teaching, there's games-based pedagogy. Like, that's, that's part of the problem. So, generally speaking, we can talk about game-based learning as using games for educational purposes. Um, so, and games, let's just say digital games, using something like Civilization, right? Like a history game, Portal, about physics, Minecraft about construction and Maths, cooperation, science, math, science, biology. Yeah, Minecraft EDU. Yep. And so, and maybe that's students on their own, right? So the students are playing games in their house or they're playing games in a computer lab. Um, and that came from uh, Mark Prensky, right? So game ba- uh, digital game-based learning. That's right. That, yeah. was the, that, was the book of, that was the title of his book. Or in a class or in an after-school program, right? So Kurt Squire organizing an after-school program to play civilization with children and to discuss the system of the game with the children. And so it's leveraging games for educational purposes. I, I think 20 years ago or, or 30 years ago or whenever, or even now, it was uh, revolutionary to even say that children learn from playing games, right? I mm. think that people assumed because they were popular culture, because they were toys, because they were frivolous, that children weren't even learning from games. But then Jim G, of course, wrote his book about literacy and language and how, of course, like to, to play any game, whether it's uh, hearts or uh, snakes, do- and snakes and letters, dominoes, tag, you're going yeah. to be taught how to play that game by your peers or by a parent or by uh, whoever. And you're going to get better while playing the game. Like, it sounds stupid to say that now, right? Because we should be past that point saying, well, you're, you're running pedago- you know, Pedagodzilla for God's sake a show about thinking about learning through pop culture, right? Mm-hmm. And so the idea that we learn from games being revolutionary is just, it, it, it's, it's past, <laughs> right? We're, we're past that point. Yeah. And, we're, and we're hopefully going to get past gamification thing as well. is though, right, just to, just to push back <laughs> on this one, is that um, whether you're playing a commercial game, a commercial game or a game that was designed by the teacher, what we'd like to argue is that Regardless of what game is being used, it's the surrounding pedagogy which will actually enhance that learning. Yeah. You've got to do that consolidation at the end, otherwise the yeah. students don't know what they've learned. That's true. I was going to ask about endogenous and exogenous, and if you think that's a useful distinction to make. Hello, listeners. It's Editing Mike here. If, like me, you learned all of your big words from video games, then you may not be familiar with the terms endogenous and exogenous. I know I surely wasn't. So, endogenous is defined as having an internal cause or origin, and exogenous is the opposite, an external cause or origin. Uh, In biological context as well, it's also growing or originating from within a system 
or organism, and then the opposite for exogenous. Hope that helps. On with the show. Whether or not yeah, the game yeah, yeah. elements are just bolted onto the pedagogy or whether they actually oh, are an intrinsic okay. part of the pedagogy. So this is – no, it's really interesting because there there were some really interesting studies. I wish uh, – yeah, I know the one you were thinking – are you thinking of the one with the, the warrior who had to do – to, to do multiplication problems yeah through, uh, so I, yeah who is that that's um it's the university i started started working at which was the university of wolverhampton and they had a game called doom ed and basically yeah. it was like uh <laughs> or doomed and it was basically play a level of doom and then in order to play the next level of doom you've got to answer some maths or physics questions and then they were in part of the game but it was basically here's a puzzle that you have to solve which involves understanding some physics Right, you've understood that bit now. Now you're on to the next level. You could go around shooting zombies again. And that was just, that was kind of, there's a game element in it, but it was just bolted on to the basics of, you know, it wasn't, you didn't have to understand physics in order to play the game directly. It wasn't an intrinsic part of it. It was kind of exogenous. I mean, a lot of subject disciplines have game mechanics already hardwired into them. Evolution is a game mechanic. And if you, therefore, are drawing on that essential element of the discipline for your game, it seems a lot more natural fit, and I think it works better. But so, I don't know uh, if yeah. it's a useful distinction so you make. I think, I th- okay, so I think it's interesting if to look at those types of distinctions if you're operating under a perhaps behavioristic or a cognitivist mm-hmm. approach to learning. Okay. If you're interested in information transfer or, or memory or, or, or training in that sense, or even, even constructivism, I think it's interesting. So I like your example of them being together or them being split, because it ties into what we want to talk later about good teaching. So okay. the, thing that, the, thing that, no, the thing that you just said was one might be better than the other for the student. But then if you put the teacher into that equation and, and you think about what the teacher could do in those for for each of those 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 situations, for example, when you talk about okay, play play a level of doom, then answer a bunch of trivia questions, and play a level of doom. In my pedagogy, which is pretty radical, humanistic, liber- liberating, agency building, like Paolo Freire, you know, pedagogy of the oppressed stuff, mm-hmm. I would love to show that to my students and unpack what what is the design. What did the designer want here? What's the experience of the player okay. here? But yeah, what's, but this, that's what's the system? Meta, it is meta, but that's that's also yeah. my teaching, though. Yeah, but right? you're not teaching physics. But I, I, my students are still interested in a variety of games. Like I have thousands of games in my office, mm-hmm. and I teach in an international relations department. But I think the point about that physics doom one though is that yeah, they have shoehorned, they have tied it in quite hard into into that because maybe it's not an easy topic to teach in a game itself. Like they couldn't do a. And androgynous was what? what was the an <laughs> anodyne? I didn't, get, I didn't get the words. Uh, exogenous and endogenous. Uh, oh, thank God! Yes. I think you said erogenous. Yes. <laughs> well, those yes. are interesting games, but I don't think you can get away with playing them in the classroom. <laughs> but then, you, but then you're sort. Then you would get into okay. So look at look at how they've tried to shoehorn the learning objectives into this game. Hmm. Could oh, there's so many, just so many beautiful pedagogy Even if you're examples. in that physics class, you could say that was crap, right? Shall we do it like without games? That's right. That's and right. Like, exactly. Yeah, that's probably better. Yeah, why was that? <laughs> yeah, and then they could perhaps remix it for their lower grades. Like I've done this kind of stuff with game-based learning, right? Like so, Yasmin Kafai, for example, has had fourth grade students 
make math games for the third grade students. Holy right? shit, sorry, yes. And, yeah. and actually, when you get the, when the students to make the games... That's fucking amazing. Oh, man. Right? Yes. Yeah. Like, like, so you, so the fourth years, the fourth graders have to master the content and think about the audience to make questions for the lower grade. And so you're building in community, you're building in knowledge, you're building in design skills. Like that's also like just the bleeding edge mm. of game-based Good, learning, game-based game pedagogy. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the bleeding edge of just design. Like it's just, uh, learning sciences, actually mm. learning sciences. There's a couple of papers that there's one in, Poland, maybe where they did designing versus playing educational games. And of course, the designers did a lot better because they had to master the topic in order to make the game. Itself. Exactly. So, exactly. Yeah. Did, did you have one more thing you wanted to cover in the talk about what game-based learning is? Well, so game-based learning is often conflated with gamification. So teachers don't know which one is which. Those terms are often thrown about uh, willy-nilly. That's British. That's British. That's yes. British. Oh, that's good. Uh, that's really appropriate use of the phrase as well. Yeah. Do you I get, get a, a badge? <laughs> yeah, you get a you get an honorary Brit badge. <laughs> hey. And then also, also, also with game-based learning, like you have to think about how much the teacher knows about games. So teacher gaming literacy plays into this. Just logistics, like, hey, I want to use Minecraft EDU. Oh, wait, it's like 30 bucks a, a station. And, and you need a license. Yeah, yeah. And then and then how do you convince policymakers and your and your and your principal yeah. or the board of ed to do this kind of stuff? And it's also really tricky to align games with course goals too. Like, even though a, a curriculum might be really rigorous and a game might be really... But the Doom Ed is uh, an example of that. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So it's very tricky to align games with course goals, right? So some and problems then, with game-based learning, essentially. Yeah. There it is. Next. And then there's also this pushback about having games at all. You know, they're going, yes. this is this is fun. You're not supposed to be having fun in the classroom. So, I, and so it, as a side note, like, so I, I teach at a university, right? And when I started at my university, I, I ordered a bunch of games. This is what I do. And I have to, I have to get them checked in by the university you know, all equipment needs to be checked in. And they said, you can't buy games. You can't buy toys. Mm. What are you using your research budget to buy toys for? And I mm. had to dock, I had to show books and translate it into Japanese and show them how I was going to use it. Not everybody's going to want to do that, you know, to put, to be able to yeah. construct a, an argument or a rationale. You know, it, it's very tricky. It, it's very uh, activity theory. Yeah, I know you hate activity theory, but it's really good. Okay. So, um, We've covered the matrix. We've covered the matrix within the matrix, or the blue and red pill. What's the word? What, what, what the underlying metaphor of the red pill and the blue pill is. Uh, we've also finally uh, broken down uh, gamification and games-based learning, um, which is good for me because I always have the two a little bit conflated. So thank you very much for separating them out and knowing which is the good one and which is the bad one. Fabulous, fabulous. So let's now return to our question. How is gamification like being, sorry, the very black and white distinction, I know. Uh, how is black and white, excellent game. How is gamification like being trapped in the matrix and what is the real world of games-based learning in the second part of the show? Part two, the answer. Okay, so how is gamification like being trapped in the matrix and what is the real world of games-based learning? So, Gentlemen, you have spent mm. quite some time thinking about this and you have um, written what's essentially a paper, or what is actually a paper and will probably soon be a published paper that answers this question. So please take it away. It's really short because yeah. I, the matrix is about control, right? So the, the matrix, the system is about controlling humans and to turn them into batteries. So gamification, gamification is, is about controlling behavior of either customers or students. There you go. Yeah. So students have a lack of choice or agency in what they want to do. 
yep. um, where those choices are made, even though they may have choices, those choices I mentioned during the uh, definition of gamification are kind of predefined by the teacher. Uh, so it's kind of a, an illusion of choice in a way. They also, the people in the game that are in the matrix, they cannot transfer their skills outside of the matrix. We, we see that when um, Neo comes out of the, the matrix, he's very weak and he can't do anything. However, when he's in the matrix, he can be given these um, jolts to the back of his head and he can, he can have Kung Fu uploaded and he, he can be a master of Kung Fu within the, uh, the matrix itself. So the idea here is that in gamification, yeah, you may be good at doing these rote drill tests and things to get points, but then how do you use them in the real world? Where's the participation? Where's the transformation happening? Right. The extrinsic motivation doesn't transfer to intrinsic motivation. That's another transfer. That's, that's not another happening. transfer yeah. that doesn't happen, right? Yeah. Exactly. We'd like to add one caveat in here at the very end in that in the Matrix movie, the vast majority of humans that are being used as batteries that are plugged into the uh, Matrix, they do not know that they are in the Matrix. So in our argument here that gamification is not playing a game, but it's kind of tricking people into thinking that they're playing a game. Well, in fact, I, I think that a lot of students would actually know that they're not playing a game. So the caveat is that people trapped in the matrix do not know they are trapped, whereas in the real world, most students would would know that they're not actually playing a game in a gamified classroom, if that, if that makes sense. It does, but I'd kick back against that. Okay. Uh, which do. is, uh, you know, the Kurtz, you mentioned Kurt Squire and his civilization thing. And I really love that paper that in the, he found that a lot of the students that kicked off against playing civilization in the classroom were kicking off against it because they could see other people being more successful at what, at the, their classes than they were. It's the, often the more academic ones that kick against trying to create more creative, more expressive ways of teaching in the classroom. And, what he was saying was that this is because they're already playing the game. They're playing the game of academic uh, excellence. They're playing the game of getting your essay in on time. They're playing the game of meeting the structural requirements of the education and the neoliberal mm. and all that sort of stuff agenda without realizing that that actually is just another set of game outcomes. Mm. And there's an assumption, there's an implicit assumption that I don't think people are awake to because they've taken the blue pill that actually all of that is just another set of rules and we mm. need to be able to stand outside that to see that that's just a set of rules and that's the way we've constructed society and it doesn't have to be like that. And I don't think the majority of people who are succeeding at playing it in that way are aware of the alternatives and aware that actually they are succeeding because of structural inequalities or just the way that they happen to have learnt the implicit rules in society which other people aren't learning or don't or, or aren't able to enact well it's so that's something we've covered in the show before as well with critical uh, jesse stommel's um yeah. critical pedagogy arming people by making them aware essentially that these systems are around they exist and getting them to think about and challenge them giving them the equipment they need to understand and to challenge them and how important that is that's not quite what i was saying mark uh, uh, okay the I think gamification is pitched at like the class being like a game. Is that fair to say that? Okay. Yeah. So my biggest objection to this is that you're not fooling any kid by saying this class is like a game. They know that they're not actually playing a game because they know what playing a game is like. Right? Sure. They know what, what it, is, it is to control Mario or play FIFA or, you know, play World Card Against Humanities or something. And they're like, oh, this class, it's going to be a game. And they get in and it's like, hey, you start at an F, you've got to earn XP to get an A, just like a mm -hmm. game. I think that most students would be like, you're not going to pull the wool over their eyes. 
No, that's maybe right. if they're mm. younger. Maybe if they're younger, then they would. They would be like, oh, wow, it's just like a game. This is brilliant. But I think a lot of students wouldn't be tricked by that. Whereas, the, the, see, the, the, the metaphor of the matrix is that people really do not know that they're in the matrix when mm. they're in there. So, you know, that's the optional caveat that I'd add on here is that, you know, even though the people in the matrix, they're all kind of blind sheep. People in gamification classrooms, like the students, they know that they're not really playing a game. And really that whole thing about the structures of control is a separate argument completely, really which is that there is another game going on, but it's not part of your gamification. Yes. It's the fact that it's already been gamified and we're not aware to the extent of which it, we already are gamified. Absolutely. <laughs> it, so just simplifying just um, to, for my own kind of uh, stone brain, um, just simplifying it even further. I think I'm thinking of like a, a, a primary school, your year one student where you might have, for example, the, uh, the smiley face sticker based reward system uh-huh. doing your sums right. And of course, in the Matrix, everybody is unconsciously living as the primary school children are in a world where you get your sums right and you get a smiley face sticker and that is how things work. But the connection that's not being made is that actually if you get your sums right here, then 80 steps down the line, 2 plus 2 actually lets you do some really incredible things. Like it's a, this, the, the, the foundations that we're laying here are very empowering. However, because you are a child, you're not actually able to really, you know, your, your brain's not formed enough to actually be able to grasp where this is going to take you further down the line. And that's why we've got you in this illusionary world where smiley face stickers are the reward for doing your two plus twos, rather than saying, if you do your two plus two here, then later down the line, you might oh, right. send a rocket into the moon or something. You know, it might go into a mm-hmm. stable orbit or something like that. Um, but you've got to preserve that illusionary world, that matrix world for the students to... And it would perhaps work with the elementary um, school students as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. But, and then as a student progresses and gets older, suddenly, you know, uh, the connection and the meaning to them, because we're t- uh, sort of going back to the head of the show where you're talking about building uh, a connection and relation to themselves and their lives and uh, that uh, engagement and agency. That's much more important to a student the older they get as their brain develops, as they become more involved in critical thinking and thinking about the world and the situations that they're in. So yes, it's, it's almost like the blue pill is to stay as a toddler and the red pill is to progress to year three. Gamification is then treating people like toddlers in a way, you're saying. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, there we go. That's, that's the yeah. head for the show. <laughs> <laughs> Being pulled out of gamification and into the real world of game-based learning, quote unquote, this doesn't work as best as as well as we'd like. But um, and that's because even when you pull a student out of a gamification classroom, they're still actually in a classroom where there are still systems of control. So we're not saying that pulling students out of gamification is going to I- immediately emancipate them. Um, from any kind of grade or assessment, it, it doesn't doesn't work like that because we're classroom based teachers. We teach in in real classrooms where there are grades and things that need to be done. However, gamification Ugh. is the illusion of playing a game in education, whereas game based learning is actually playing a game as part of education. That is where mm. I'd like to keep the the two things separate. Yeah, right? I, and there I, are so many I, different ways to use games in education, right? And that's something we can absolutely get into here or later or whatever. Like, so the way that we use games in education can vary a lot. So what is the real world of game-based learning? Segway, 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 segway. That was beautiful. That was great. Uh, so as James said, right, the real world of game-based learning is playing games. And that could be a wide variety of games. That could be a digital game. That could be a card game. That could be a role play. Um, but then we, we hear the listener saying, but that could still be gamified, right? Yes, because game-based learning is separate from gamification. So you could gamify a game-based learning classroom. Gamification. so even game-based learning is still a system of control it's being carried out in a system of control 
a classroom, a school society with rules. Yes. Right. So, so then we, we would love to try to put a spin on that, to try to connect that to sort of a, another real world, just the, the real, the real world of pedagogy. Yeah. Right. That's a bad segue. You can cut that. The, the desert of the pedagogy. Yeah. The desert of pedagogy. <laughs> the pedagogy of the real. So yeah, it's saying that you could gamify a game-based learning class. Yes, of course you could. You could say you're going to play this game for 10 points or whatever, right? Um, but if you use good pedagogy, then you actually don't need gamification. That's where we bring, that's where we come down on this. Oh, but one thing to say is like, if you, if a teacher does need to enact short-term behavioral change, gamification might be the right strategy, right? If, if a student doesn't want to do something, if there is no building intrinsic motivation to do a task, gamification might be the thing to use. But like you just alluded to a couple seconds ago, there are so many different ways to structure a class that draws on just better teaching, right? Using using games in a more humane, uh, intellectual, humanistic. But if you use any good, or I guess if you use any pedagogy, <laughs> then you don't need to use gamification, right? Um, and so there are these different pedagogies that that you can use. Uh, so with the self determination theory, right? If if teachers are thinking about how to make their students more autonomous. Yeah, more my argument for that is that if if good gamification, quote unquote, good gamification is based on SDT, then get rid of the uh, the, the game part of that and just say, yeah, this is an SDT class and uh, you're going to be learning with the autonomy and you're going to feel competent and you're going to feel related, related to students. It's not a bloody game. Yeah. Right. Yep. So you'd, in, in that case, so think, thinking about that physics game before, then you'd have students being students of physics, right? So yeah, so they've been learning to be physicists, right? Working with working with each other, building competencies to do some sort of real world meaningful task. Yeah. Yep. Not not playing Doom with uh, bits of physics they, thrown in well, there. Well, they could be they could be taking their physics knowledge to, as Mark said, to to make a a, compu- a computer game which relies on physics models. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um and then there's so many different types of pedagogy that people could put in their toolbox. Mm. Right? So uh, you alluding to before this idea of all right, Jesse Strommel's right uh, critical critical pedagogy, a dialogic pedagogy, right? Talking to students more, uh, taking a so- Socratic approach may about I, ideas. So may I just butt in very slightly and say that game based learning is not really a pedagogy. It's the use of games for educational purposes, right? So that the idea of game based learning, it's not like a particular teaching style. It can be put into other teaching styles, which I think is what Jonathan's going like through now. pencil-based learning. <laughs> but you did mention ludic pedagogy earlier, so that assumes mm. that's an aura and approach, a pedagogical approach that sounds wider than Hell yeah. games-based learning. So it's wider in terms of the things that we could use, right? We, so we, yeah, could, the- we, we could use uh, a video game, we could use a card game, but we could also use things like debate, drama, role-play, simulations storytelling and and poems right creating language yeah our use of the term ludic for pedagogy ludic pedagogy is a playful pedagogy and is is very much like what jonathan just said the idea and mark just mentioned of being more inclusive to other forms of playing games because i think nowadays uh game-based something you just instantly think of digital games and to try and break out of telling teachers that they must use the latest AAA blockbuster that's going on sale on Steam or something. You know, you don't have to use that digital game. You can use a very simple paper game or a, a playground game or even just be playful in how you teach. We're moving towards the term ludic more than uh, than game-based. 
But that's where the department I work at, that's one of the areas of specialism is this whole playful learning, playful teaching. Right. Thing. Okay. So, so for you, does ludic mean things like, uh, for example, like learning from failure, right? Like yes. When we, that's... when we play, we experiment, we make mistakes, we reflect, we revise, we try again, like failure is a part of play mm. and celebrate. is often not a part. Yeah, exactly. We celebrate it, right? Like yeah. A beautiful mistake. <laughs> no, we, we yeah. played a bunch of board games this weekend, like screwing up in that in that space is okay it, you were meant to do it that's possibly why they employed me because you know that's one of the things <laughs> i'm an expert in. <laughs> that's really interesting so just how do you define because i think you're right the for me a ludic has always been um an approach and kind of a for almost a sort of a philosophy of playfulness yeah and finding fun in what you're doing yeah mm-hmm. um is, would that be an accurate way of because mm-hmm. i just want to make sure I, i've actually been using it right all these years absolutely and i guess i want to make sure that we're probably well, distinguishing it from games-based learning which i guess I, I, well, i'm feeling but, now is more of a almost like a domain and a tool i think fun is a bit of a tricky word because not all of this is fun right like there there's a, there's a really fine line when you fail in a game between that feeling of screwing up and learning uh, and, so it and needn't be fun is it, the point it, yeah so so what do you mean mike uh, in terms of like how does fun connect to a ludic approach for you well i guess uh, that's why i mean fun starts to get at that fun in games it's motivation it's gonna be yeah. great because, because also, you enjoy it right and that's what i'm concerned about and also there is no consistent definition of what that is <laughs> i know because the last paper i got had published was on fun and we were trying to merge different taxonomies to come up with an overriding. This is what every if we, this is the whole thing about what all of fun is, and nothing fitted. Everybody came at fun from a completely different angle uh, within the literature. Yeah. There was no kind of correlation at all between how people were writing about it. So yeah, I think playfulness is a is a clearer word to describe what's going on there. Oh, mm-hmm. That's very useful. Yeah, like I say, I've been I've been using the word for for years, and I'm just now thinking, have I been using this word right? Mark LeBlanc looked at different types of fun, right? The idea of fantasy or narrative or discussion mm. or discovery or expression or fellowship. I think fun is a great word, but it's it's like gamification. Like people are using fun in different ways, and I think as educators, as researchers, as writers, whenever we come across those words where people might be taking them in a Talking different direction. Yeah, then then we should just be more specific, and we should use language a little bit more carefully. So, I think I think That's fun's excellent. a great word. Seriously, fun fun's a great word. Yeah. So the idea of gamification and, and how it might appeal to a lot of teachers is the idea that even if you don't do gamification as a classroom teacher, you're still grading students uh, and you're having to control them to learn the material in a way. So the fact that gamification is very similar to what they've been doing up until that point in terms of you know grading students and stuff. It's kind of safe. You don't have to know a lot about games. You just kind of rephrase what you've been doing all along. Like instead of a, a task, it's called a quest now. Instead of groups, you've got guilds. Um, instead of an A, you get 100 XP. So it seems like a, a safe option. And th- and if we go back to Cypher, he likes the Matrix because it is that safe option for him. He, he kind of liked knowing what he knows there. So the idea here is that breaking out of the mold and you know, having to change class activities, grading rubrics, learning something new about teaching, learning about games in order to use them, it's hard. And I think that that links to the Matrix in that if when Neo comes out of the Matrix, he finds that it is bloody hard to survive in the real world. And so if a teacher does not have support um, when they are looking to do something with games in the classroom, then 
as Morpheus says, they might find themselves in the deserts of the real. There's a quote. Do you want to do that quote there? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a scene in The Matrix where Morpheus takes Neo into a version of The Matrix where they're walking on a city street and and, uh, he encounters an agent dressed in the agent. And what Morpheus says to, to Neo is that you have to understand most of these people are not ready to be unplugged. Right. So maybe a lot of teachers aren't ready to be sort of unplugged from systems of control and traditional ways of controlling students. Right. And Morpheus says, and many of them are so inured, accustomed to something unpleasant. We had to look this up. So hopeless, hopelessly dependent on the system that they will fight to protect it. Right. So the teachers being dependent on the system of grading, of control, of badges and rewards that they're going to fight to protect it. Like whatever's comfortable to them, they will you know, continue to praise it. And, and maybe that's where some of this gamification hype is coming out of, right? That, that this is another way to continue to perpetuate the system, which is really troubling to us. Hmm. And that's the Kurt Squire thing, is that so are the students? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, you've got this great quote, right? For teachers, right? How difficult is it to, to get come out of the matrix? Like how how difficult would it be for a teacher to red pill <laughs> from gamification and, and and sort of cross over to sort of good teaching, good pedagogy? You say, hey Johnny, what do you want to do today? Uh, right? <laughs> you, right? Like what what do I want to do? What, what you're giving me a choice? What you're, you're uh, what, what what earns me 100 XP? It's not a lot. Mr. It's, York? it's not always the uh, the students' fault either, though, right? right, right, right. Uh, exactly. And the teachers' fault either. That's right. It's the system. So, Again, a quote from an actual paper um, on gamification. Uh, It's um, from 2017. It says, it's from a, by a teacher, by the way, a high school teacher. He said, within my own context of teaching in higher education, uh, gamification is a very appealing proposition. The ability to harness the power of games without the difficulty of trying to implement games within my courses. So you can see here that the idea of by adding on this layer and not having to try and implement games, which is a tricky, uh, a cold desert or whatever it was, the desert of the real. But yeah, that's, that could be a reason why people glom onto gamification. If I can just very quickly return to the point you made about how you know how teachers taking the red pill to maybe get away from this. I, I guess I'm drawing a conclusion between this and learning styles in that gamification, it feels almost like it's a, an easy answer to a hard problem. The hard problem is I want to have students be motivated playing games and learn through playing games within my teaching. Gamification is a layer, as you say, that you can paste over the top of that and then go, aha, it is done because it's the conflation of the two. It's the conflation of gamification and games-based learning into a single thing. Whereas, in fact, it's not that at all. It's not displaying those. But then you can say on your Ofsted report, I'm using these in my thing. And actually doing more with that in the same way as with, with, uh, with learning styles, actually sort of really understanding your students and not just putting them into these very easy pigeonholes and boxes. Challenges is a big challenge to your practice and what you may have learned in sort of developing your teaching, particularly if you've heard from people, you know, the, the, the generation of teachers before you who, who grew up on that, mm-hmm. or maybe in a, in a school system which embraces those. But I, yeah, I wonder if that's one of the big challenges in, in that gamification presents what appears to be on the surface a very easy answer to what is in fact that's right. I think that's teaching right, problem. Yeah. I think that's, that's very correct, yeah. Mike, you're so good at that, right? Listening to our babbling and ranting and then just pulling out the key bits, pulling out the yeah. key bits and, and restating them. You do that all the time on the podcast. And can, right can I just take credit for that, for having given him a lot of practice? <laughs> <laughs> We've broken down our answer to the question there for both gamification and games-based learning. So let's return to our original question 
and see if each of us would like to have a go at just answering it in one or two sentences. So how is gamification like being trapped in the Matrix and what is the real world of games-based learning? <laughs> James and Jonathan are literally fighting over who's going to go first. Put a junk in it. Sure. I've got a show. <laughs> no. They just played Jenkin for it. It was amazing. <laughs> so gamification is a system of control over students' motivation. And the Matrix is a system of control over all of humanity. And so it's, it's, it's about control. The real world of game-based learning could still be a system of control, uh, depending on the context in which games are used. But game-based learning uses real games, however you want to use, say that. And if you want to break even further out of the real world and really um, have some hard fun, uh, you've got to embrace good pedagogy. Mm. Is it my turn? No, no. That, that was <laughs> that's right. Fuck you. No, I mean, you can't drop it. the one mic because the mic's on the table. <laughs> right. One take the Han. That's what they call me. <laughs> James, you're bash. Gamification has the allure of playing games in education, but you're not actually playing games. The real world of game-based learning is playing games as part of education. Wow. You, you get a Mekong. You get a Japanese <laughs> orange. <laughs> they look delicious. And Mr. Child. My take is that all of education is already gamified in that okay. it's a system of scores and gratings and leveling up. You level up from your GCSEs to your A-level and your A-level to whatever. And it's not just that. It's when you go to work, when you pay your taxes. You know, it's when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. Everything is gamified in that sort of way. It's wool that's been pulled over your eyes to blind you to the truth. And I think trying to introduce something different that breaks us out of that, like, and games-based learning could be one of the ways to be more playful, getting people to question, is maybe a way to take the red pill and make sure it really is the red pill. So really the red pill is pedagogy? Good pedagogy. Yeah, it's the red pa – Paolo Freire is the red pill. There's my one take. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. Uh, I'll have a bash. I think mine's going to okay. be because all three of those were excellent. Um, I think my answer to the question would just be very simple. It's a, a metaphor for growing up. It's being in a simple world that's divorced from meaning and moving into a more complex world with more agency and more opportunities to connect that. All four of those were great. So now we have to have an interactive podcast where the, the listener has to roll a d20. <laughs> <laughs> those are some fabulous answers, folks. Thank you so much for those. So Let's take all that forwards now into the very final part of the show where we'll give you some <laughs> tips you can take into your own practice. Part three, practical tips for your own teaching. Okay, folks, so what are your top tips based on our discussion that people can take into their own teaching and pedagogic practice? So I have two. Uh, the first one is to be a human, not a battery. Woo. And? Uh, if you are a teacher who thinks that you might be giving your students garbage work to do, don't try to sugarcoat it. Yeah, just drop the stick, right? You don't have to punish them. You don't. You can drop the carrot. You don't have to try to put rewards in front of them either. You can try to just give your students more meaningful things to do. Love For example, it. linking it to their real life. Their real life, yeah. exactly. Okay, so I want to give teachers the, the, the most credit that they deserved. And, you know, a lot of this choosing of gamification is, is sometimes not even their choice. You know, they, they might have it pushed onto them. They may not have the what we call the, the freedom to play. So if, if you're a teacher that thinks you definitely can't do anything in your classroom to you know, improve what you're doing, you, you don't have any freedom, really try to consider 
even a little bit, where do you have freedom to play and start your revolution there? Okay. I think it's really useful. Um, so as Morpheus and his ship, the Nebuchadnezzar and his crew uh, pulled Neo out of the Matrix, um, they, they, they were pulling lots of people out of the Matrix over, you know, the before that and whatnot. And so I think it's good for teachers if they're interested, if they're trying to uh, red pill or they have already red pilled to to pull other people out with them. Right. It's, it's really hard to do things by yourself. And so it's important to find or join or make a group of people who are engaged in improving their teaching and classroom culture. I just think you should be transparent with students about grading. Don't try to say, you know, we're going to do XP and all this stuff. Be transparent. This is the class. This is how you're going to be graded. This is what I'm going to give you if you do these things. So lately in the past couple of years, I have been starting many of my classes and seminars. I tell my students that at any time during my class or in discussions, they, they're always free to raise their hands and say, who cares? So what? Yeah. Right. If they think that what I'm trying to teach them isn't valuable or useful or not making sense or, or a waste of time, I encourage them to voice that. Right. Because it's my job as a teacher, because they're not always going to understand what makes sense or what's meaningful, even though I might have a better idea of what that is. So that transparency that James just talked about in terms of grading, I think it's transparency in terms of a, of a course curriculum, mm. in terms of, in terms of a, a reading that you assign students or, or, or an end of the semester project. Like what, just be transparent about what this is supposed to do and, and, and what everyone's role mm. is as a, as a crew on a, on a hover ship. I really love yeah. that because I think something that we've banged on about a couple of times is the importance of and the gap between teaching people how to learn and teaching people how to understand their own learning and how important that can be. Uh, Mark? Pretty much that was everything. I think I can't, the only thing I could say to summarize is um, don't be a dick, be ludic. Oh, oh no. <laughs> that was so good. I think we've just peaked. That was it. That was, that was the peak. <laughs> uh, brilliant. Yeah, I'm well, used to that. Fuck's sake, Mark, I can't top that. <laughs> we'll work a pun into mine now. I tell you, I'm, I'm going to throw in my last little tiff, actually, which is uh, have a bit of sympathy for Cypher, I think. Um, okay. I think it's fair. I think we've kind of, we've maybe not um, thought about the student perspective on this quite so much throughout. And there's a big part of particularly higher education is essentially academics grooming young people to be as miserable as they are by knowing, <laughs> by knowing too much. And Cypher kind of he got he got a glimpse of the real world and decided he actually quite liked it back in kindergarten and he wanted to go back and eat imaginary steak in an imaginary penthouse. So I guess thinking of any of your students who may be resistant to change, you just need to be very considerate that maybe they're going to need a little bit more encouragement to bring them through that transitionary step and understand that maybe you're not going to pull everybody along with you. Some people will stay where they are. And maybe that's right for them. Yeah, yeah true. Yeah. Well said. That's killer. God, that's so human. We can fake humans sometimes. We're pretty good at that. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so before I wrap up the show, Jonathan and James, do you have anything you want to plug? We just want to invite teachers, researchers, students, anybody interested in education. Um, if you are interested in the things we've been talking about or, or specifically in uh, u- uh, using games or ludic approaches with, with language and literacy teaching, uh, we run the Ludic Language Pedagogy Journal and Community. We have a nice Discord server. Uh, and we lots have really, of free papers on the lots topic. of free papers yeah. it's it's open peer review we don't do blind review there th- we have a crew who talk to we each have other. a nebuchadnezzar right? we do, yeah. we do. <laughs> so you can come and chat with us on discord anytime or find us on twitter and that kind of stuff so 
if you don't have a crew, come join ours. So where we go from there is a choice I leave to you. It's quite um, the movie. Okay, then. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan and James, for joining us on this episode. You've been fabulous. Uh, I say guests. I mean, you actually basically created the entire episode from scratch, and then Mark and I have been on the rails for it, and it's been uh, it's been a just fantastic experience to come through. Thank you so much. Pleasure, yep. absolute pleasure. Hope we can do it again sometime. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, you can subscribe to us on all of your favorite apps, feeds, iTunes, and at our website, pedagodzilla.com. You can also get in touch with us via Twitter. I'm at Pedagodzilla. I'm at Mark Childs. I'm at Jonathan DeHaan. I'm at Cheap Shot. Cheap if enjoyed, Shot. <laughs> if you've enjoyed the episode and really hope you did, then we'd be obliged if you could please leave us a review on iTunes or just share it. Um, most of our kind of circulation is through signal boosting and word of mouth in places like uh, Twitter and uh, grad schools, weirdly. So share it with somebody who, like past me, might have conflated gamification and games-based learning. Nice, that's we Love you lots, and we'll see you next time on Pedagodzilla. Bye, man. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye.